The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. It's been a little quiet around here lately. I got COVID, which made it tough to breathe freely and near impossible to record. The Explorer's voice is quick to tire on a good day, and my lung capacity has been pretty slow to return. That said, the rest of Season 3 is written and in the process of making its way to your ears. To tide you over until the next regular episode, I have a surprise interview for you that'll take us even deeper into the world of a Tudor queen. Our last few episodes have thrown the spotlight on Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, and Jane Seymour. But in each of their stories, there have been women always hovering around them, just at the edge of our frame. No Tudor queen is ever alone. They're surrounded by ladies who sit with them through her most important moments and are privy to her most intimate trials. Some of them are relatives and friends who will be with them forever. Others become rivals for the king's affection the kind with the power to tear their queen's lives down from within. To find out more about who these ladies were, I turned to Sylvia Barbara Soberton, author of a series of books called The Forgotten Tudor Women. Her newest book, called Ladies in Waiting, Women Who Served Anne Boleyn, pulls the curtain back on the lives of the women circling the queenly throne. So let's explore the life of a Tudor lady-in-waiting the duties, perks, and potential pitfalls of serving the king and queen at such close quarters. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Keely, I'm Not Your Llama, Olivia, Cynthia, and Amai. My newest lady president, Steph, my newest boss lady, Dawn, and Amy, Annabelle, Elizabeth M., Grace, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Michelle, Monique, Natalie, Nuria, Patricia, Rebecca, Sarah, and Tanya. My adventuresses, Anna, Carlos, Deborah, Emily, Helena, Iris, Jessica, and Jessica with an R, Joe Marie, Kelly, Phil, Stephanie, and Terry. My newest warrior queen, Ika, and Lori, Alexis, June, Neve and Sloan, and Kate. My imperial empresses, Bridget, Katie, Samara, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And of course my lady pharaohs, the fabulous Laura and the wonderful Courtney's. And now, here's Sylvia. Sylvia. 
Just a heads up, something funny happened with Sylvia's recording, and while I've cleaned it up as much as I know how, you're going to notice some static. What she has to say is worth it, I promise, but I thought I'd let you know up front. Sylvia, hello! Thank you so much for coming on to the Explores. Well, hello there! I'm very happy to be here. So, you are here today to... Uh, tell us a little bit about the Tudor court and specifically about a queen's ladies-in-waiting. So before we jump into that, could you just tell us a little bit about what brought you to studying the Tudors and specifically to write your latest book about Anne Boleyn's ladies-in-waiting? So um, I'm a historian, researcher, and author of numerous books about the Tudor women. Um, my new book is entitled Ladies-in-Waiting women who served Anne Boleyn, and I wrote it because Anne Boleyn is a very well-known historical figure, yet her ladies-in-waiting remain an understudied subject. Much emphasis is usually put on Anne's relationships with the men in her life, so with Henry VIII, her royal husband, her suitors, Thomas Wyatt, Henry Percy, her father and brother, and her putative lovers, who were executed on 17 May 1536. By concentrating on a previously neglected area of Anne's female household, I really wanted to identify the women who served her and investigate what roles ladies-in-waiting played in her household. Hmm. Okay, so I feel like um, when it comes to the Tudor court, the ladies-in-waiting are always a prevalent part of every story that we hear about the Tudor queens. But we get this image of them as kind of just being sort of standing around, always being around the queen, but we often don't really get a very clear picture on who they are and what they actually do. So can you tell us a little bit about the ladies-in-waiting just more generally? Where do they come from? Who actually chooses the ladies-in-waiting? And what kinds of attributes and characteristics are they required in order to be chosen for that position? So usually the queen and her lord chamberlain were responsible for selecting the ladies, although in some circumstances the king interfered, either on his own account or after being consulted. The ladies were usually daughters of aristocrats, so their fathers, brothers, uncles were already working at court and could introduce their daughters to court service. Their mothers and female relatives in general were also uh, serving as ladies-in-waiting, so they were also in a position to introduce their uh, female kin to court. Um, and that was, uh, you know, kind of the case with Anne Boleyn, because her father introduced her to uh, the household of Catherine of Aragon when Anne returned from France. And we know that because George Cavendish, um, the servant of Cardinal Wolsey, told us as much. Um, another example would be Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk. So it was Anne Boleyn's uh, uncle. He secured a place within Anne's household for his daughter, Mary, who was 13 years old. Uh, so as Anne's cousin, Mary Howard was admitted, you know, because of that relationship, family relationship. Although the minimum age for a maid of honor was 16. Um, Women started their careers as maids of honor, so they were unmarried, and usually in their teens or early 20s, um, and they became ladies-in-waiting upon marrying. Um, 
So attributes, physical appearance played an important part in securing a position within the royal household um, because the women who were expected, um, they were expected to take part in revels and masks and to entertain foreign guests and the royal couple with singing, dancing and, you know, these sort of activities that played um, a central part of courtly life. Um, we have an example of one of Henry VIII's first recorded mistresses, Bessie Blount, who was praised by chronicler Edward Hall uh, that in singing, dancing, and all goodly pastimes, she excelled all others. Um, the king fancied himself as a poet and a musician, and he apparently paid much attention to women with similar talents. Anne Boleyn was praised for her musical abilities. She knew how to sing, how to dance. She played the lute and other instruments. We know that she all owned a pair of clavichords. Um, there is also a music book of hers that survives. Uh, so she knew a thing or two about singing, dancing, and um, playing the instruments. And also, the ladies had to know foreign languages because the language of the culture at court was French. Uh, so this was a very important language. When uh, foreign ambassadors came, there's evidence that the ladies spoke French to them and that the gentlemen, you know, kind of conversed with them and that they were very pleased that their language was spoken at the English court. Uh, and Berlin, again, she was credited with ex excellent knowledge of the French language. Um, other attributes, um, the ladies were expected to know um, how to embroider and how to work, work with the needle because that's what they did behind closed doors. They... They were working on, on sewing shirts for the poor, um, sewing church ornaments also, and um, you know, decorating the, their their spaces with um, uh, with with their own needlework. Hmm. So it sounds like they were they were expected to be fairly accomplished accomplished yes. ladies. Yes. Yes. That's and... true. So so not only beauty, but you know. Mm -hmm. Um, also a set of talents, hmm. uh, I would say, yes. So we know that the, the ladies in waiting would have been spending a lot of time with their queen and um, their relationship with the queen could actually be quite intimate. But in terms of their roles, what were they actually expected to do day to day? What would their days have looked like? So I'm going to talk, uh, talk about a little about... Um, the groups of ladies-in-waiting that Anne Boleyn had in her own household. Mm. So uh, this, um, the ladies who belong to her household can be divided into five groups. So first we have extraordinary or great ladies, such as Agnes Howard, Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, or Margaret Grey, Dowager Duchess of Dorset, who were not regular ladies-in-waiting, but were selected to attend grand occasions of state, such as Anne Boleyn's coronation and the christening of her daughter, Princess Elizabeth. These women carved out successful careers in their youth and retired from regular court service by the time they turned about 50. Um, the second group consisted of married ladies-in-waiting who served Anne on a daily basis and formed the core of her privy chamber. These were her um, intimate friends and often members of her immediate family, and included such women as Jane Boleyn, Anne's sister-in-law, very famous, Mary Howard, her first cousin, and Mary Carey, her sister. Um, the third group consisted of young and unmarried maids of honor. 
They were usually in their teens or their early 20s, who were, they were just starting their uh, careers at court. And in 1533, Anne Boleyn had seven maids of honor and one mother of the maids, uh, Mrs. Marshall, who, was, who supervised them uh, on the Queen's behalf and making sure that they behaved. Um, Anne's maids were Mary Howard, Mar- Marjorie Horseman, Jane Ashley, Mary Shelton, Elizabeth Holland. So um, they often appeared in, appear in the narrative of Anne's rise and fall. Um, some of these women were Anne's relatives. Uh, so, for example, Howard and Shelton were her first cousins. Uh, Bessie Holland was the mistress of Anne's uncle, the Duke of Norfolk. Uh, Margaret Gamage was the cousin of Jane Boleyn, so we assume that um, Jane introduced her to Anne's service, um, and so on. And the number of maids of honor often changed because many of these young ladies married and either advanced to positions of ladies-in-waiting or withdrew from court. Um, the fourth group of the Queen's female servants um, consisted of women who were not her intimates, but served her because their husbands held important offices in her household. So we have, for example, Isabella Bainton, who was the wife of the Vice Chamberlain, Edward Bainton, Elizabeth Boulain, so she was Anne's, um, Anne's aunt, uh, the wife of Anne's uncle, James Boulain, who was, who was Anne's chancellor, and Margaret Coffin, who was the wife of William Coffin, master of the horse. And the last group, the fifth group, consisted of chamberers. So they were servants of the lowest social standing um, in the Queen's household. Their chief responsibilities was to uh, clean and refresh Anne's apartments in the morning, arrange her bed linen, serve her midday meals. So um, they were not as intimate and as close to Anne, but still their their work was very important. And what did they do, uh, just in general terms? Um, So a queen, as we know from the narrative, was very rarely alone. And even at night, she was accompanied by a trusted lady-in-waiting who slept on a pallet bed uh, to be at her royal mistress's beck and call. Um, And before she woke up, the fires were already lit in her suit, so... um, so when she when she woke up, she wasn't cold. Uh, the ladies would bring um, basins with warm water and fresh linen towels for the queen to wash her face and hands. And then her ladies would dress her. And dressing was quite a ritual mm-hmm. <laughs> with all of the layers that went uh, um, on her body. Um, so dressed for the day, Anne was accompanied by her, by her ladies to the chapel where she would listen to mass inside her... Uh, private closet that was a, a little gallery above the pews where she could um, hide behind and, uh, you know, just worship in private. Mm. Um, while she was at prayer, you know, her chamber chambers would clean her apartments, um, so making her bed, plumping her pillows, changing the sheets and emptying chamber pots. Um, so when she returned, uh, she would usually have breakfast. Um, she would, you know, if it was just a regular, normal day, um, she was just, you know, reading books, doing some embroidery, uh, perhaps go out for a walk or um, go out for a hunt with the king and be accompanied by her ladies there too. Um, if it was, um, you know, a day, or a feast day, or if foreign ambassadors were visiting, then uh, the ladies would accompany the queen um, 
wherever she went, or they would stay and stand behind her um, throne and basically serve her. Whatever she needed, they would bring her. So quite a life. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just so interested. I actually didn't know there were so many different tiers of ladies. Um, That makes total sense. So you had the the maids of honor who were unmarried, and then you had the actual ladies-in-waiting, and that was like for married women. I wonder how... It just sounds like the ladies-in-waiting spent a huge amount of their time with the queen. So how did they... I wonder how they balanced their duties to the queen with spending time with their husbands <laughs> and their sort of home duties. Well, so that's, um, that's an interesting uh, interesting issue because um, we have more evidence of this from the time of Queen Elizabeth I, actually. Um, Elizabeth was very reluctant to part with her ladies-in-waiting and, um, well, she never married and she had no children of her own. And um, she kind of refused to let go of her ladies who were pregnant. And there are um, references to women who were heavily pregnant and serving Elizabeth right up until the end oh my. <laughs> of their pregnancies. <laughs> um, uh, if they felt well, um, didn't suffer any morning sickness, then that was perhaps easy, but some women um, didn't feel well and they, they usually retired, although the queen parted with them very, very reluctantly. Many women in Anne household, for example, they were um, pregnant at the time of their service. Um, and we have, um, well, evidence that, for example, when Anne was arrested, she uh, lamented the, um, the case of her lady-in-waiting and friend, Elizabeth Somerset, Countess of Worcester, because um, apparently the child that she was carrying didn't move in her belly. And that was a serious concern because um, the lady thought that maybe her child was, was dead. And uh, Anne Boleyn believed that this was because, you know, the sorrow that she took for her. Um, so... Um, you know, husbands, I think, I think the husbands were pretty happy about their wives having the ears of the queen um, because they had benefits from that too. Um, so if you were clo- in close contact with the queen, you could um, have her patronage, um, you know, you could petition for lands, for favors. So there was always a, a benefit and advantage to being so close to the queen. Right. It, it, I imagine that having that kind of intimacy with the queen would give them, um, as you say, access. Um, having proximity to her means perhaps having favor with her and thus having favor with the king as well. So it sounds like there were a lot of positives for a woman to be a lady-in-waiting, but were there potential downsides or dangers to being a lady-in-waiting? Well, so... John Hussey, the the London agent of the Lyle family, he famously stated that the court was full of pride, envy, indignation, scorning, and derision. And that's true, and especially when you look at Anne Boleyn's rise and fall, that's very true. Um, And Anne's um, rise to to queenship changed the rules because she was uh, a maid of honor of Catherine of Aragon, and Henry VIII noticed her. And uh, she became his wife, she became his queen, and she had to look out for other attractive young maidens uh, who could potentially 
take away her place and, you know, basically unseat her as queen. And that really happened, you know, because Jane Seymour was Anne's maid of honor. Um, so, yes, I, I imagine that there was a lot of, um, you know, um, quarrels, backbiting, you know, backstabbing. Yeah. <laughs> lots of, lots of, um, you know, it, it wasn't as relaxed as we sometimes are led to believe. Yeah. Um, by popular narratives, but um, you know, th- there's evidence that Anne Boleyn, uh, she felt insecure in her position in 1534. She 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 always looked out for the for the for the women um, who you know were Henry VIII's mistresses. Uh, she was jealous because you know who wouldn't be in that position. Um, so yes, I, I imagine it was very stressful for her. Because she, she she completely changed the rules, and uh, I feel like Catherine of Aragon was more secure in her position because she was Spanish. She was a foreign princess. She had family in you know well connected family in foreign courts, um, and Anne didn't have that. Uh, she had only her family in England, and uh, if anything happened to her, nobody would come to rescue her. And indeed, you know, she was executed because Henry VIII felt like he could do that. And no, uh, you know, foreign repercussions would occur on the international um, scene. And uh, he he had, you know, problem with Catherine of Aragon because I feel like he would have perhaps gotten rid of her earlier had if she wasn't a foreign princess. And that was, I think, uh, what saved her from perhaps Anne Boleyn's fate uh, because it, it wasn't thinkable to execute a foreign foreign queen um so he he wouldn't do that but you know he did banish catherine and she she was quite isolated although um uh, she wasn't poor as she you know complained uh, that she was poor and that she she was ready to uh, go and beg arms but that's not true that you know she was just very melodramatic Which <laughs> and is, really, yeah. really <laughs> Fair really, enough. he took really, yeah, you know, who wouldn't be? I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah, Henry VIII, you know, he took care of her household. He was paying money, um, selecting servants and so on and so on. But it was for, you know, from Catherine's point of view, it was great injustice because she was treated as Dowager Princess of Wales and not Queen of England. Right. And she called herself Queen until the day she died. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about how, as you say, Catherine was from this illustrious family, and she was, you know, quite tight with the Pope, and she had a lot of connections, really important connections. And even with all of that, she was still put aside and didn't ultimately, you know, she was cast aside, even with all those connections. So from the very first day of her queenship, Anne must have felt incredibly insecure. And she was very much a self-made woman, you know, she got herself into this position. So she knew that um, being a maid of honor, an unmarried pretty maid of honor, that's that's how she ended up having access to the king. So she knew there would be others behind her. It happened once. Why couldn't it happen again? So she must have been very anxious <laughs> for a lot of reasons throughout her queenship. You really have to feel for her. It wasn't an easy position to be in and especially she's surrounded by these women some of whom are related to her some of whom i'm sure she loves and trusts deeply but 
I've also read that she was she had to be very suspicious of some of her ladies because there was this feeling that perhaps some of them were spying on her or reporting to other people on her. Is that is that true? Were there ladies who were informing on her? I feel like um, when it comes to Anne Boleyn's downfall, um, you know, her her ladies in waiting were set to stepped forward with damning evidence. And it's what Thomas Cromwell basically, um, you know, he put that official line that uh, it were um, Anne Boleyn's ladies in waiting who could not hide her immoral behavior any longer and that they came to him with um, the damning evidence. And one of the women whose name appears um, in connection to Anne's downfall is Elizabeth Somerset, Countess of Worcester. And she was Anne's friend, as I, as I said before. Um, there's evidence that they, were, that they had very tight friendship even before Anne became queen. And when Anne Boleyn was arrested on 2nd May 1536, she, you know, she much lamented my lady of Worcester's you know, baby because that child did not stir in her body and she believed that it was for the sorrow she took for her. And this proves that Anne didn't know at that point that it was, well, allegedly at least, uh, Lady Worcester who, who accused her. And um, how do we know that? You know, there was this um, courtier, John Hussey, the London agent of the Lyle family, who, who tried really hard to uh, get to the bottom of what really happened. And he said that everything was so discreetly spoken that he could hardly learn anything of substance, uh, and that he learned that the Lady Worcester was the first accuser, and that there was uh, none Cabham and one maid more. Um, so do we believe that, you know, that her ladies, um, you know, basically spied on her? I don't think so. I think that Cromwell was looking for ways to discredit Anne, to make her look like she was uh, leading this immoral life um, and that her ladies were disgusted with her behavior. But I don't think that was true. I think that the evidence that we have shows that Henry VIII was tired of Anne Boleyn. He, um, he was also very disappointed that she didn't provide a male heir. Uh, but she was still quite young. You know, she was either in her early to mid-30s. So that was um, still relatively young. Women were giving birth to children you know, throughout the, their uh, their 30s and even into their 40s. So I don't think that that was something that um, would discredit Anne in the long run. She, she still could become pregnant. But I think that the evidence that we have points to the fact that Henry VIII was just disillusioned with his marriage to Anne. Uh, she was this, you know, an, um, you know fascinating, beautiful mistress. Um, but when he finally... Uh, you know, married her. She was, you know, insecure and she she was jealous and he expected her to just put up with his affairs uh, like Catherine of Aragon did. And he once famously said, you know, you should just shut your eyes and endure as your betters had done before you. So that's, you know, quite painful, I think, for Anne uh, to be compared to Catherine of Aragon like that, you know, to be said that uh, Catherine was better than her. Um, and, you know, Catherine, in the beginning of her marriage, she was jealous of Henry VIII's mistresses, but she saw that she probably would alienate him 
more if she was quarreling with him about it. So she just accepted that he would have mistresses, especially when she was pregnant so many times. Um, and, you know, they were not supposed to have sex during pregnancy. Um, so the king usually was looking for ways to um, satisfy his lust elsewhere. Um, and Anne was not ready to accept that. She she knew that, she, you know, her relationship with Henry was was, um, was on a physical um, level as well, you know. So she was not ready to accept that some other woman would just, you know, take her place in his bed. Um, and so, you know, I think that it must have grieved her so, so, so very much. And, you know, the fact that Cromwell later said, you know, that it were her ladies-in-waiting who accused her, that must have been very painful. But I think it was a setup. I think, um, you know, there's evidence that um, her ladies-in-waiting were perhaps uh, bribed. Uh, I think they were intimidated also because, you know, they must have been afraid. Um, and they didn't know how this this will unfold. We know because we are looking with hindsight, you know, we, we know how this story ended, but they didn't know. They, they lived through it and perhaps, you know, thinking, am I next? Am I going to die with her? Uh, so, um, you know, that's, that's an interesting subject to, to ponder uh, because definitely, you know, Cromwell and, and perhaps even Henry VIII, they, they, they sought means to discredit Anne, to, to depict her uh, in the worst possible light to, you know, insinuate that she was leading this lust for immoral life, uh, that she betrayed him, you know, the king with so many men. Um, but um, at least one woman we know, Marjorie Horseman, she was very reluctant to testify against Anne because we have evidence from Edward Bainton, who was Anne Boleyn's vice chamberlain, and he said that um, Mistress Marjorie was acting very strangely towards him. And he assumed that this was because um, of the great friendship, he used that term, great friendship, that sprang between Anne and Marjorie. And so it's nice to think that Marjorie was loyal to Anne until the end. Uh, we don't know, we don't have the, the final um, look into the, uh, what her ladies said exactly, um, but... I assume Marjorie, you know, that she, like like other ladies in waiting, that she said something, you know, because the the the, the evidence that we have um, points to the fact that the ladies were just, you know, saying things that they saw. So, for example, that you know the queen um, was sometimes laughing at the king's dress and his poetry. That you know George Boleyn perhaps mocked the king's virility, and that Anne said that the king doesn't have. Um, you know, skill or virility uh, to satisfy a woman. So she was implying that, she, that he was impotent. I think she was trying to save her own face, um, you know, explaining why she wasn't pregnant as fast uh, as people expected her to be. Um, and so, you know, these scraps of conversations were provided, but uh, they were, in my opinion, they were um, misconstrued and... Um, taken to mean that perhaps would you know mean, to mean that Anne was conspiring that she betrayed the king, but that's you know like um, 
Cromwell and the king, they wanted to get rid of her and they wanted Henry VIII to move on, to have another wife, uh, to have children, sons, and I think he was really tired of that. Yeah, and as you say, um, it's it's easy for us to look back with hindsight because we know what was going to happen and say, well, obviously her ladies must have known that they were damning her, but they had no idea. A queen had never been put to death before. They didn't. They were under a lot of pressure. They didn't know how their comments were going to be taken and what kind of case was going to be built against her. So yes, I can imagine. I feel for both Anne and her ladies because they would have been under a lot of pressure and just doing yes, because, their best. You know, because t- today we, we, we feel like Oh, it was the case where Anne Boleyn was going to be executed and everybody knew it. But as you say, uh, a queen was never executed before and it was not reasonable to expect that she would be executed. And in the tower, Anne also verged between hope and desperation and she she believed that she would be sent perhaps abroad, perhaps uh, she, she believed that she would make it out alive or at least believed until 17th of May uh, when her putative lovers were executed. I think at that point she knew that she was going to, you know, be executed as well. But the conspirators who uh, conspired against Anne, so the conservative faction, often used the words dismiss and divorce interchangeably when speaking about Anne's ruin. So it cl- clearly shows that they expected, expected Henry VIII to divorce Anne and send her away from court in, in disgrace, just like he did with Catherine of Aragon. Let's talk a little bit about Jane Seymour. So it's my understanding that Jane was one of Anne's maids of honor. So do we know much about their relationship, the relationship between Jane and Anne? So when she first came to the attention of Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, uh, Jane Seymour was described as a former servant of Catherine of Aragon rather than a new arrival. Although it remains unknown when she left service of Catherine and entered Anne Boleyn's. Uh, but she wasn't new. She, she, she probably knew Anne from the time when they served Catherine of Aragon together. So they were colleagues. Um, and some sources claim that um, Anne Boleyn called Jane Seymour sitting on Henry VIII's lap when she was pregnant. And the shock she experienced contributed to the miscarriage that she suffered in January of 1536. And Anne allegedly exclaimed um, that she saw this harlot Jane sitting on your knees. She was, you know, talking to Henry VIII while my belly was doing its duty. So that's very dramatic. And uh, um, I think it's, you know, perhaps reasonable to assume that um, the shock Anne felt at Henry VIII's betrayal caused her, you know, to miscarry. Um, that that was one of the factors that she herself later um, said contributed to her miscarriage. Um, and Henry VIII, you know, he apparently didn't feel accountable for the fact that Anne lost her child. And she con- he continued his affair with Jane, you know, plunging Anne into a state of intense rage, according to Chapuis. Um there, You know, Jane, Jane Dormer, who was um, Mary Tudor's uh, maid of honor, she she knew some stories about Jane Seymour and Anne Boleyn, and she said that there was often much scratching and by-blows between the queen and her maid. Um, well, you know, I don't think that they were physically, uh, you know, physically arguing or, uh, 
you know, in the Tudors, there was this famous scene where um, I think she slapped Jane or, you know, but, but that, that was not the case at court because when you um, was, you know, at court, you were not supposed to beat other people or quarrel with them. Uh, that was strictly forbidden. So I think that what was um, the case was just, you know, this quiet uh, observing one another and uh, perhaps, you know, Anne was in a position to dismiss Jane from her, from her presence uh, and so on and so on. But, you know, um, I think definitely that, that there was a lot of jealousy because Jane, um, she, she was the king's mistress, although she was not his mistress, mistress in a physical sense, in a carnal sense, because just like Anne Boleyn refused to become Henry's mistress and sleep with him, Jane did the same. <laughs> right. Oh, it must have been so difficult, so difficult for Anne to watch, but also... It, there must have been a really tense undercurrent in some of those those rooms, the queen's rooms, because I'm sure oh, there yes. were other ladies in waiting <laughs> who, you know, they all knew what was going on. And so there would have just been, I imagine, a lot of kind of quiet tension and whispers. And I, I think that oh, yes. being a lady Lots at court, it would have been a very complex game to play to try to stay in power. And yes. Well, um, when we talk about Jane Seymour, we, we usually just talk about, you know, her and, you know, what, what Chapuis wrote, because he's our main source. But we rarely talk about the fact, the fact that um, there was a lady-in-waiting at court who hated Anne Boleyn. And her name was Gertrude Courtney, Marchioness of Exeter. And she coached Jane uh, how to behave with the king. And uh, she was part of this conservative faction at court. She was a Catholic, like Jane. And um, she basically wanted to see Jane becoming queen in order to restore the Catholicism in England and also to restore the Lady Mary, Kennedy's elder daughter, into the line of succession. And, um, you know, it is Gertrude who was the source of this story of how Jane refused to accept a letter from Henry VIII, and this letter contained money. And, that you know, we know that Jane fell on her knees, told to the royal messenger that uh, if the king wished to give her money, she sh he should do so when she married honorably. And that, you know, interestingly, Eric Ives, Anne biographer, uh, said that perhaps this letter contained summons to the royal bed. And Jane was very clever and wise not to open that letter because, you know, accepting money would equal her accepting the position of royal mistress. So that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot about their relationship that we won't ever know. But I do think it's interesting that often history paints Anne as the scheming temptress and Jane comes across almost a bit angelic and boring. And I think, you know what, I don't, I don't think she was uh, I certainly don't think she was boring. <laughs> I think. No, I don't think she was boring either. No, no, no. Because I think that um, when you were in that position, um, you, um, you know, you had to be clever. You had to be wise. You had to, you know, navigate all of that intrigue and find your own place within the narrative. Um, so Chapuis, for example, he wrote that Jane was quite quite haughty and that she was 
quite firm in you know her resolve to become queen and uh, you know bring this um, new era I, I would say um, you know Catholicism uh, restore the Lady Mary and you know there are a lot of conversations that Yusisha we uh, reported you know of Jane talking to the king about you know the possible restoration of the Lady Mary you know that took courage because Henry VIII wasn't really into that idea because he hated the idea of uh, political faction clustering uh, about his daughter the Lady Mary because he disinherited her um, and he placed Princess Elizabeth Anne's daughter first uh, although the custom was that even if the marriage was dissolved the elder daughter would have been placed before the younger one and that's also what Yusuf Shafui uh, um, told the king, you know. So he was also very courageous, <laughs> yes. um, you know. But he wasn't, you know, he was a, um, a foreign subject, so perhaps not his head was not um, um, in any danger of being cut off. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, Jane Seymour. I think, I think she was, she must have been, you know smart and intelligent Um, because you know emulating Anne Boleyn that was smart because if if Jane just agreed to become mistress I think um, you know Henry VIII would be like okay I'm moving on to the next one because Mm -hmm. he famously lost interest in Anne when he possessed her and I think the same would have happened to Jane Um, and you know Chapuis also you know he said after the marriage after Henry VIII married Jane, that Henry VIII saw two beautiful ladies at court, uh, and he regretted that he didn't see them before. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> oh Henry! Oh, oh Henry! Oh, oh Henry. my God! <laughs> oh, what can you say? Well, I do, and I do think another aspect of being a lady in waiting that would be really difficult is the moral aspect. You know, women in the Tudor age, um, especially women at court, are kind of towing this really delicate line on one hand they're expected to kind of play into the whole thing about courtly love and there's a little bit of flirting and a little little bit of poetry and they want to be pleasing but they also can't flirt too much they can't be too pleasing because then their you know virtue virtue and could be questioned so I imagine that that also um, required a lot of savvy well, yes, um, you know, Anne Boleyn's downfall is a case of courtly love going spectacularly wrong mm-hmm. because, um, you know, she was expected to be this, you know, unattainable mistress to, you know, dabble in poetry a little bit, you know, um, uh, flirt perhaps, but innocently. And, uh, you know, what she said to her male courtiers was misconstrued later. And um, it was very, you know, very difficult to balance that. Um, and, you know, also when, during Anne Boleyn's rise to power, um, ladies-in-waiting were um, divided into two camps because, uh, on the one hand, they were loyal to the queen, and on the other hand, they had to kind of, you know, accept that the, you know, the queen was on the go and she was losing favor, and Anne was becoming ever more popular in Henry VIII's affection. And so uh, they had to choose their allegiances wisely. And many women 
chose Catherine uh, because she was queen, she was anointed, and, uh, you know, because Anne was kind of caught up in anomalous positions. She was neither a queen nor a mistress, and it was must have been difficult. And chronicler Edward Hall wrote something very interesting, interesting about the queen's ladies-in-waiting, uh, because he said that uh, ladies-in-waiting who served Catherine of Aragon spoke unfavorably about Anne, and said that she so enticed the king and brought him into such amours that only for her sake uh, the king sought to divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Um, so that must have been difficult because, you know, the hateful glares of the ladies-in-waiting, um, the whispers, um, and well, it was, you know, she was losing her reputation. Uh, she was losing her youth. She also complained, you know, that she was not married. She didn't have children. So uh, that was that must have been very nerve-wracking for her. And, you know, she... At some point, I think she accepted that her reputation was already lost because although she didn't have sex with the king, uh, people assumed that she did because, you know, they were not really interested in, you know, what she said. You know, the, the, to the eyes of the people who observed her, she was the king's mistress because, you know, uh, she supplanted the queen uh, in his affections and he was doing everything he could to marry Anne. Uh, so she was queen in all but name. Um, but in general terms, I think that for her it must have been very difficult. Her rise um, and fall were quite spectacular, and I think that you know because you know there's again there's evidence that when Henry VIII started pursuing his divorce, he believed and Anne believed so as well that uh, the king would be divorced within a year and that she would be married to him quite quickly, and you know it dragged for so many years and uh, and. You know, she, from the obscure lady in waiting, you know, maid of honor, she became this figure of scandal, lots of enemies. You know, again, Gertrude Courtenay that I've mentioned before, she, um, she and her faction talked about Anne Boleyn bewitching the king, you know, um, uh, forcing him to an unlawful love, and that you know carried connotations of witchcraft. So they implied that Anne was using perhaps some love magic to <laughs> mm. uh, make Henry really love her. Uh, that's all in the record, you know. Um, and we so it we was love very to blame difficult. women, don't we? Oh, Not yes, Henry, we... let's just blame the ladies. <laughs> yes, let's, let's just blame the ladies, exactly, yes. Well, before we wrap up, would you tell us a little bit about your book and where people can find it? Uh, so my new book is entitled Ladies in Waiting, Women Who Served Anne Boleyn. It's coming out on the 23rd of July. Um, people will be able to buy paperback, hardcover, and Kindle edition. Uh, you can buy from Book Depository, from Amazon, uh, and perhaps from other online retailers as well. I will inform uh, my readers, my uh, followers on social media, when the book comes out. Uh, and I'm very excited for this book to finally be released because that's something that I was working very hard from, you know, basically two, 2009, I think. That's mm. when uh, I started really, you know, researching Anne Boleyn in earnest. Mm. <laughs> um, I finished the book in 2017, uh, but then, you know, I, I wanted to add more of this, you know, archival 
uh, evidence to it. And so I was polishing it and polishing and polishing and it's finally ready. So I'm very, very, very excited to release that into the world and, you know, let ambulance ladies in waiting tell the story of Anne's rise and fall. That's fantastic. And it sounds like such such a wonderful book, such a wonderful addition to the world of, of Tudor literature for us all to devour. And I can't wait to read oh, it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're so kind. Well, thank you so much, Sylvia, for coming and joining us today on the Explores. Oh, thank you, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. That was a real pleasure to chat to a fellow Tudor enthusiast (laughs) about the ladies-in-waiting and Tudor court. I loved it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. There are lots of ways to explore the Explores. Tell a friend about the show, leave a review wherever you listen, or become a patron. You can also have a browse on my website, theexplorespodcast.com. You can find me on Instagram and occasionally on Twitter and Facebook. For more on Sylvia's book and her other works, check out her website, sylviabarbrasoberton.blogspot.com. Thank you.